Since 2009, the 20th of February has been the United Nations observance known as World Day of Social Justice. The purpose of the day is to focus on the plight of social injustice throughout the world and to press for improvements and solutions. World Day of Social Justice recognizes the need to promote efforts to tackle issues such as poverty, exclusion, employment, gender equity and access to social well-being and justice for all. Social justice, equality and equity constitute the fundamental values of all societies. We are very, very happy to have Mark with us today. I couldn't say him, as I did in the introduction, as one of our social justice warriors with a long uh, CV, which I'll summarize, Mark, if that's okay. So Mark is a South African human rights and social justice activist based in Johannesburg who studied English and literature at Oxford University and later African literature at WITS. His political activism commenced in the early 1980s in England as a member of the militant tendency and continued in South Africa as a leader of the Marxist workers' tendency of the ANC. After the liberation of South Africa in 94, Mark joined the AIDS Law Project alongside Justice Edwin Cameron and Zahi Ahmad, and his activism in civil society spans the whole of the democratic period of South Africa. Between 1997 and 2010, he was the head of the ALP, one of South Africa's most successful post-apartheid human rights organizations. Later, he co-founded Section 27, a public interest law center that seeks to influence develop and use the law to protect promote and advance human rights which incorporated the alp in 2010 he's also one of the founders of the treatment action campaign in 98 the aids and rights alliance of southern africa and corruption watch and save south africa mark stepped down executive director of section 27 in may 2019 and is now dividing his time between his positions as the founding editor of a new civil society social justice segment of south africa's most widely read online newspaper and news source the daily maverick maverick citizen and it's there where we're going to start mark so I think for, for me, what people don't often get is what social justice actually means. You know, we step into a world where we, were, we had a very oppressed society, very oppressive laws, and suddenly we are democratic. Having a democratic government doesn't mean that there is social justice. No. What, is the, what is the difference? Well, let's put it this way. When we started with our democratic government uh, in 1994, we inherited a great deal of social injustice. The starting point was that people did not have equality when it came to education, the schools kids went to. People didn't have equality when it came to the health care uh, that they went to. People didn't have equality when it came to the houses that they lived in, the human settlements, the environments in, in, in which they lived. These are all social issues that, you know, as you know, Luke, are fundamental to our being, to our dignity, to our ability to grow as human beings to, to, to relate to, to other people. So we had to, to move to correct social injustice. Mm. And the way to correct social injustice is to move towards social justice, mm. which, 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 which basically means give everybody an equal start. Mm. You know, give everybody a, a decent chance at health. Give everybody a decent chance at education. If you give everybody an equal start, some will rise, some will halfway up the ladder, some may not climb the ladder at all. Some will go this way, some will go that way, but, but there was an equal start. And I think mm -hmm. that's a perfectly reasonable aspiration. And what it means in practice is that 
we need to commit to trying to narrow the inequalities that exist in our 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 society and it's very practical things i mean a school that where where kids don't have toilets or where they where they risk literally risk life because they fall to the bottom of a toilet and drown versus a you know a school where people where the toilets are so clean that kids can drink the water out of the toilet they don't you know that that's inequality and and i don't think many people would disagree that that's wrong so for me the w- one of the well where you and I crossed paths and sort of simultaneously drew swords was around children of the city of Joburg now the thing for me that has been very interesting with the human rights commission and what we see with the equality laws in the country is that the designated groups for example women the disabled certain race groups populations etc there's a sense that there was a previously disadvantaged and the human rights commission has been fighting quite hard for issues around um, for example racism and people going to jail for racist comments children are not a designated group now one of the things i find quite difficult is that in my opinion they were actually a previously disadvantaged group by all of the things that you you have said and the idea that we still don't have children as a designated group we have people saying terrible things like we had the dross rapist case and a comedian coming forward and saying things like oh, will your six-year-olds not be able to discipline them send them to the dross and the, the idea that there is no recourse for people uh, for me that's hate speech against children mm-hmm. And the the fight to get children recognized as a designated group is sort of my lifelong passion. Where have we gone wrong? We have gone wrong. And it's a tragedy because I think one of the things in our country with our unique history that we all understood was that the people who suffered most painfully and greatly under apartheid were, were children. Uh, you know, and we think of the images of, of, of how children suffered. You know, look what I would say. I listen to you and I think, well, the world is what we make of it. Hmm. The fact that children may not be a designated group strictly in law doesn't mean that we don't designate children in our attempts to fashion the world as a designated group or, or a special, special group. I, I think I'd say two things. One is the kind of legalistic thing which is the constant our constitution is the foundation of our new society and i i treat the constitution as my touchstone for everything in the constitution children are a designated group mm. they have a section section uh, 28 i think it is mm, uh, of the constitution that is only about children mm. and in fact it gives children a higher level of rights it doesn't say for example when it comes to health that that children have a right to healthcare services that must be progressively realized over time and blah 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 it says children have a right to basic healthcare services finish and class mm-hmm. full stop that you know sure. so, so children have a right to quality health services now it's, it doesn't say children have a right to basic education over time it says children have a right to basic education full stop children have a right to basic nutrition full stop you know so, so the problem is that you and i and everybody else haven't really taken advantage mm. of that law. And the second thing I'd say, just very briefly, which I've learned in my years as an activist, is children, we need, children need to be more visible. Right. Children need to, to, to be given space to speak for themselves, to, to, to be heard 
And I don't mean that in the cliche where children, you know, children must be heard. If you, if you, if you allow yourself to be invisible in society, you get overlooked. You know, that was one of the things that we did in my years working on HIV. When we started to fight on HIV in the late 1990s, we said, okay, this must be led by people living with HIV. Mm. The world must know what it is like to die of HIV. The world must know what it is like to be a mother whose child dies of HIV. You must feel that pain. You must cry with me. You must empathize with me. And I think the same is, is of children. If people mm. understood, as you know better, far better than me, the traumas with which our children live, then maybe something would change. And if people of privilege, like us sitting in this room of relative privilege, who've been able to bring up our own children and love them unconditionally and care for them and worry about them and so on and so on, and feel every little injury that the child gets, could transfer that sense to somebody else's child and think that that child down the street or on the street corner is just the same as my child in its capacity, his or her ability to feel pain, to feel hurt, disappointment, thwart, to be thwarted, to be abused, then maybe <laughs> we'd, we'd be different. And I mean, two, two things to follow on from that. I mean, uh, I think it's a great answer that your opinion around um, President Zuma saying that he's defying the constitutional court and Ace Makashula saying that don't worry about the constitution, we'll tell you what's going on as a kind of a foundation for being selective about which parts of the constitution are important politically. And secondly, under COVID, our children didn't have agency in their own right. So so as much as we say children need a voice and we bandy about this idea of child participation from the Children's Act, children need an adult agent to get their agency in the world. So we've got a government that doesn't seem to take the constitution seriously, in my opinion. It seems that under COVID, children's rights are regressive. How do we actually realize these, these what are supposed to be the, the indelible rights of children in our constitution? Well, uh, as you say, children need an adult agent. Why? To open up the space, mm. if you like, so that children can be heard. And again, it's not enough to be heard. So that children's ideas and vision and demands can be expressed. I worry all the time that this world is ruled by people who are over the age of 60. And yet, <laughs> you know, sure. and, yet, and yet from an early age, you know, if you look at where does creativity come in the mm. world, where does music come from, where does the greatest literature come from, where does, uh, does artistic sporting achievement come from? It's from, from youngsters mm. and, and from, from people who are just, just over, over 18. So, so why is it if that's the source of so much that happens in the world, it's people who are past it? Uh, who, who, so, so I think we have to make, adults have to make that space, but adults have to make that space and then step back mm. and, and allow these voices to be heard. And I think that's what you do and it's what you know, I would like to do. I, I can't speak as if I'm 16 anymore. Sure. Uh, Are you not 16, Mark? I'm afraid not. Oh, Long okay. ago, I was. <laughs> I can remember it. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I can't. And I don't actually see the world through a 16-year-old's eyes. I think a 16-year-old boy or girl looks very differently at the world to the way 
we do. Mm -hmm. We're different ages here, but to the way we do. And, and, and that's really important to try to understand. And again, people like us should listen to, mm. to younger people, yes. seriously listen to younger people and try to understand the culture, the priorities, the things that are buzzing around in their ears and, and so on and so on. And, and, and it becomes crucial because, you know, we have left young people such a disaster in we, this we world. truly have we truly have i i fear for young people i fear for my own children i think gosh the climate crisis what that is going to look like in 10 years time what it's doing to our society the misgovernment etc so so we've got to let children take over you know we've got to work out an intergenerational thing i'm not saying we're not important i think we're very important and and i would never write off our experiences and the things that we've learned but how do we share those things? Mm. You know, how do we get into dialogue so that we can pass on some of our learnings, but we can also absorb some of their learnings mm. and some of their their perspectives? So for me, um, having worked working very closely with Luke, especially um, in the last year during the COVID pandemic, the one thing that I cannot fundamentally understand is why people, politicians, uh, political departments have to be taken to court to do the jobs that they are meant to do. So we know that so many children in South Africa rely very heavily on school feeding schemes. So there's budget for that. It happens. The children go to, to school and the children get a meal. It's, it's their right. And yet COVID happened and feeding stopped happening. And as a mother of children, I know how important it is to feed my children. Why? It's it's not human that, that you can just not do it. And, and you still have to be taken to court to be told to do it. And then there's just excuse after the excuse and it still doesn't happen. So where is the, I don't know, I don't know if you'll be able to even answer it, but where's the humanity and what are we doing so wrong? And how do we raise young people in terms of a, a culture of of um, accountability? Yeah, look, you're not going to raise young people in terms of a culture of accountability until older people accept mm. that culture mm. of, a, of, a, of accountability. In that sense, you know, young people need some sort of lodestar. If you take that lodestar away, there's nothing to, to, to measure properly against. You know, you ask a really complex but really important question, and I won't pretend that I, that, that I have an answer or that there's an easy answer. I'll tell you the bits, the things that your question makes me think. One of them is that, you know, as a society, we've we, we've lost empathy, all of us. Uh, we, we've we've lost moral compass. All of us, most of us, have lost moral compass. Uh, we we have allowed public servants to become aloof from ordinary people's realities, so that they don't take that public service seriously. They see it as a, as a foothold for themselves and for their own family and their own buddies and, 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 and so on. The, the, the ethic is gone. You know, we can talk about our constitution. I think we need leaders. It's, the constitution for me is not just a matter of law. It's about the spirit mm -hmm. that, that animates it. And how do we get that spirit back in our society how do we we have to find leaders and i'm not just talking about political leaders 
who exemplify that spirit. And, and that they don't do it in a, a preachy, talking down, didactic way. That, that, they, that they do it in a way that inspires people to recognize that community and solidarity and empathy is actually a better way to live. It's a more fulfilling way to live. You know, that's my life. I'm not a poor person, but, you know, I went to university with Boris Johnson and I went to Oxford <laughs> University. Your hair's much nicer than Boris's. <laughs> I've just got to tell you that. Yeah. You know, and I could have gone the road they went. Um, and I chose to go a road that I think has been a much more satisfying road because because it's it, it has meant constant benefit of other human beings and seeing the wonder in other other human other human beings so it hasn't meant material wealth it's it's but it's given you given given me something else and the other thing i would say just quickly on that is you know you talk about about politicians but again i think the politicians are a reflection of what we tolerate in society mm. as a whole so so they don't do what they're meant to do but i just wonder you know about all of us about what has happened to us you know, like Luke, I'm, I, I spend a lot of time running, riding my bike. I cycle around Northcliffe uh, and see these beautiful houses in which people live. And I see the wealth and the possibility. And then I, then I see the, the primarily poor people, which still in our country means primarily black people, who are walking other people's dogs or cutting other people's gardens or building other people's houses and who 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 don't get anything for it and i think i i think about those people because again i think well you're a person who has dignity and dreams and hopes and goes home in the evening struggles to feed a family struggles to bring up your kid but i also think about the conscience of people who don't see that mm. and don't ask themselves any questions about whether this is is right or or, or not Absolutely. And I think that, you know, for me, the idea that people are seen, I mean, first, we have to be present in order to notice. I mean, the observational part is important. Yeah. The second part is we actually have to attempt to mentalize and we have to try and think the mind of another person. Only then can you empathize. Yeah. And I think with the distraction of the modern world and pursuit of capitalism and materialism, there has been this almost people are just another tool by which to amass your own wealth. So this is what, how I understand, based on our talk previously, why your passion for Maverick Citizen has come about. It's about saying all the things we've said before, but within your sphere of influence, we can all do something. Everybody has the power to, at least within their sphere of influence, make their experience of the world, purpose-driven or not, a certain one. And then in terms of the people they interact with and the way they treat those people and the the way they interact with the world and the way they interpret the world and digest the world is something that you are trying to put across in Maverick Citizen. Did I get that right? You got it right. Okay. So maybe just tell us a little bit about what the passion is and how can people get involved? How do we contribute to Maverick Citizen? Because I assume citizen is because we're citizens and we need to contribute. Yeah, so, I mean, so Ma Maverick Citizen is, 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 is essentially just a portal to tell stories and to share uh, news and information about people's campaigns, people who are trying. We started this discussion talking about social justice, people who are trying to advance social justice. And I think we need to tell those stories because we, by telling the stories, we can begin to create a new narrative about our society 
which shows that it's not all the bad that we watch on the news every night or read in other places. It's not all about material acquisition. Mm -hmm. You know, there are other values that are operating in our society, and actually, they're probably the majority values, but they just don't get the airtime that, that that they need. And we do need to change norms, and we we need to change morals. So, so I see Maverick Citizen. You know, it's not a campaign. It's not an organization like I was involved in in the past. I continue to be involved in in different ways in those things, but it, it, it's an attempt to catalyze, to make people think, to make people seek things out. You know, if I I spent time with you, Luke, and, and the work that you're doing with Fight with Insight and the, the young women from Nirvana and, uh, and, and, and the work that you're doing to, you know, to clean up Peter Roos Park in, in Hillbrow. You know, I tell those stories because they excite me, mm -hmm. but I also tell those stories because I hope that somebody will read them and think, Ha, huh, I'm gonna I want to go and find these people and I want to go and help them mm -hmm. in some ways. And you know, already I've talked to young women with more who've had more opportunity in life than than say uh you know the the, the young girls from, from, from Nirvana. And I see them as, as mentors. I, I, I see, you know, there can be a sharing, there can be an exchange there. The, the more privileged people can learn what it's like to live in Hillbrow, mm. which often is like two kilometers or a kilometer as the crow flies from them, uh, and, and become better people as a result of that. But the young girls from, from Nirvana can also see, ha, there's a, this is the mountain that I can climb, and I can actually, mm. and I can actually climb it. So I'm taking a bit of a chance, you know. It's... There's so many stories that I barely have time to breathe as I move from one story to another. But I, I hope that you set them free in the world and that, that something comes of it. And, and I have seen things. That's the remarkable thing is that, you know, I see things coming. I wrote about the Makers Valley Partnership mm. in, and, and, and that helped money come towards the Makers Absolutely. Valley Partnership and volunteers. And so that's my hidden agenda. <laughs> Every time I tell the story is I, I, I don't have a a neutral relationship with the with the subjects right. that I, I tell mm -hmm. whose stories I tell it's, it I want to help them so I love you know what you're saying about Nirvana and fight with insight and that day at Peter Rose Park was truly remarkable in in people taking back spaces and sharing spaces mm. because the one thing about the dead Peter Rose Park that you're referring to, it wasn't about displacing the homeless people that live at Peter Rose Park. It was really about encompassing the entire community. And that's one thing, or not just one thing I've learned from Luke, but one of many, many things. And you spoke earlier about the Nirvana, the Nirvana group, who, who are exceptional. And last year, Luke and I interviewed Jennifer from Nirvana, who came in and spoke on International Day of the Girl Child. And it was truly inspiring. Mm. And Luke always speaks about doing with and not for and social cohesion. And that's where it needs to meet is that more affluent people, people in very different circumstances need to be coming together with with the girls from Nirvana and with the boys from Fight with Insight because we have seen over the years the incredible learning that takes place between two groups. We speak often of the youth and um, working with the Johannesburg Junior Council, the one young man stood up and he said, we are not the leaders of tomorrow. And I was like, oh my word, where's this going? He said, we're the leaders of now. Mm -hmm. And that is so very, very true. And those are the lessons we need to be taking. 
just moving on from pandemic to pandemic, yep. um, in terms of the work you did with the Treatment Action Campaign and the AIDS pandemic, we now find ourselves in the COVID pandemic. What lessons can we learn from the AIDS pandemic that we can apply now? Did we learn any lessons? Um, what, 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 what can we do to really survive COVID? Gosh, another big question. I, I, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I do wonder sometimes whether we've learned anything yeah. from the AIDS epidemic. I mean, the AIDS epidemic has helped us in certain obvious spheres. I mean, it gave us a scientific platform that has allowed us to develop vaccines more rapidly. Uh, that's the paradox. You know, the horror of HIV at least gave us a, a leg up for dealing with COVID-19 in certain respects. But I do wonder whether we've learned anything socially. In terms of empathy that you spoke in of earlier. In terms of empathy, but also about how you deal with, with epidemics. You know, HIV was a different viral epidemic of a different set of complexities. There we had to change people's sexual behaviors and, and changing sexual behaviors is enormously complex because it's so fundamental to humanity. Now, and we thought that was difficult, getting people to wear condoms and so on. Now we're having to change another type of behavior, which is fundamental to humanity, which is how people breathe and shake hands and, and, and interact. But they're not a million miles from, from each other. And we hardly have those conversations. And one of the things we learned from HIV, for example, was the importance, again, of community, uh, the importance of, of giving communities the power that they need and that often starts with actually understanding what you're dealing with uh, with you know with HIV we created power amongst people living with HIV because we went and we taught people about the virus about virology about opportunistic infections about their own health about how the health system worked etc we didn't talk down we didn't th think oh we're dealing with ignorant masses just tell them take a blue pill and then a red pill and then a People, We're a condom. People became their own scientists. That you know, mm -hmm. they became cleverer than their doctors mm -hmm. on Absolutely. on the issue of HIV. And the same thing should be happening with COVID nineteen. I mean, we're a year into this epidemic, and most people in society don't understand even the fundamentals, which is why we're all getting so confused over vaccines and why horrible anti vaxxers and vaccine denialists, etc., can have so much sway and can take advantage of the of of people's legitimate fears and, and legitimate anxieties. So I feel like we haven't, that's something that we, that, that we, that we haven't learnt uh, and, and, and that we really need. And the second thing is just, you know, government, I, I'm very glad we don't have Tabo and Becky in charge of this in the mm. sense that, Absolutely. you know, denying that the virus exists. Mm. But, 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 you can't be glad for small mercies because we should never have had that problem in the first place. Mm. But government has responded to this in the most ham-fisted, iron-fisted way that suggests that people can't think for themselves. You know, would it have been better, for example, to, to, to have a massive campaign about the harm of alcohol as opposed to prohibiting alcohol? Uh, uh, and creating a, a, an illicit market in, in alcohol. And then you lift the prohibition and everyone goes back to their alcoholic, to, 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 the, to the problem of alcoholism, which is massive in, in, in our country. I, I think it w would have been much better to do it that way. Mm -hmm. You know, you and Luke, 
I'd learned what happened in Hillbrow. You know, you, you, it, again, it goes back to politicians who are so divorced mm. from our society that think it's as simple as switching off a light. And communities will, you know, you, you switched off the light with the lockdown and you locked people in to trauma. You locked mm. people into situations of danger that may have not have been COVID, but was something else. Mm. And so I, I, it's something I'm thinking more and more about, and I haven't yet learned how to articulate it. But I really think we've, we've gone very badly wrong. Very badly in this, wrong. Uh, in the way we've responded to this epidemic. And, you know, we shouldn't just talk about it with hindsight, because one thing I would say to you and people listening is COVID-19 isn't going anywhere for quite a long time. Uh, adjust yourself to a new norm, which doesn't mean adjust yourself passively. Oh, I've I just got to put up with the fact that I'm going to have to wear masks for, for a long time. It means adjust yourself socially, politically, adjust your agency to what this means for our world, etc. And think very deeply about whether this can become an opportunity. Because COVID-19 was a wake-up in many ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's as profound a rupture in our world as, as the First World War, the mm -hmm. Second World War, and so on. And, and in those instances, a very different world had to reset completely. And we have to reset. And if we don't reset, and I fear that we're not resetting, I fear that we're just learning to get on with it, mm -hmm. then, then a desperate situation awaits us. Uh, further down down the line. Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could talk to you for hours, <laughs> but we have we have limited podcast time so that people pay attention. I'm yeah, sure we no. had no one <laughs> I'm sure we had no one losing focus during this conversation. But I just really do want to thank you. And it's it's really nice to see somebody kind of shifting as almost this I call us sort of social entrepreneurs in certain ways, but sort of these multiple social actors entrepreneurs that are able to flow and think about different things like HIV and COVID but with the same mindset of the idea that there is social justice. So thank you very much for you. Thank you for your time. I know you are a very busy man and based on your shirt which will go up on the on the site. If you don't stand for something you'll fall for anything. So let's stand for something. Thank you Mark. Mark thank you so much for being a social warrior because it's people like you who give a voice to people who sometimes think they're voiceless. And I can imagine you must get very tired having to stand up against all these things all the time. Please keep going because um, we, 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 need to, we need to make a change and change starts with, with each one of us. And my thought, Mark, is that uh, you, know, you help us go from being a warrior with an O to a warrior with an A. So thanks for that. <laughs> Just a little bit of funny stuff at the end. So please join us for our, for our next podcast, which is World Sleep Day with Joni Petty on Friday the 19th of March. And Mark, I'll see you on the hill run. I'll see you bailed out of our last one. I know. I, 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 I'm going to see if I can get there this Saturday. But <laughs> it's been a crazy, crazy, I can't tell you how crazy the last week has been. But all the best, Mark, and thanks so much for your time. Thank you to you both as well. Thank you.